Well, tonight we're going to study a name of God that's built off the divine name of God, Yahweh, or Jehovah, it's sometimes translated. And the name is Jehovah Mekadesh. Jehovah Mekadesh, which means the Lord, it is the Lord who sanctifies you. The Lord who sanctifies you. That's what this name means. And so we know from that name that our God is a God who sanctifies. And so we're going to learn what it means that God sanctifies and how he sanctifies. And this is a very important aspect, why he sanctifies. We're going to kind of delve into some of these themes tonight. But I want to show you where this name of God comes from in the Bible. Look there in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 7. Back up to verse 6 to kind of establish a little bit of context. The Lord says, As for the person who turns to mediums and to spiritists to play the harlot after them, these are people that say they talk to dead folks or, or that, uh, that uh, consult, uh, consult uh, the demonic realm to try to ascertain the future and things of that nature, witchcraft, all of this. He says, The person that turns to me- mediums and the spiritists to play the harlot after them, I'll also set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. You shall consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, For I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my statutes and practice them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. So if you were reading that in the Hebrew text, you would see where it says, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. You would see the name, the title, Jehovah or Yahweh, Mekadesh. The Lord who sanctifies. This is a name of God. Now just to kind of unpack this name of God, I want to make three statements. Then I want to talk about what this means for our lives today, what this looks like in our lives today. We kind of unpack this idea that it is the Lord who sanctifies. I want to give you three, three ideas. Number one, the Lord God is holy. The word sanctify uh, comes from the root that is the word holy. And so to, to sanctify means to make holy. It's what the word basically means, or to set apart. The Lord God is holy. Turn to Leviticus. You're in Leviticus now. Turn to Leviticus chapter 11. Leviticus chapter 11. We'll show you a passage that is quoted by Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44. The Lord speaking to the nation of Israel. He says, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be... Holy, for I am holy. Verse uh, 45, for I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So the Lord declares of himself that he is holy. Over in 1 Samuel 2, we won't turn there tonight, but 1 Samuel 2, uh, we see um, Hannah in her song of praise declare that God is a holy God. Now, what does the word holy mean? When when you hear the word holy, it may conjure up all sorts of images or ideas in your head. What does it mean when God says, I am holy? Let me give you several thoughts here. First of all, holiness speaks of his uniqueness. The, The basic root idea of the word holy is to be set apart. So when God says, I am holy, what he's saying is, I am set apart from everything and everyone else. There's none like me. I'm totally other. I'm totally different. I'm totally unique. I'm set apart. I'm transcendent above the created order. 
I'm holy, I'm different. That's, it speaks of His uniqueness. There's no one in the universe that is like God. He is totally set apart. Also, holiness speaks of His absolute moral purity. His absolute moral purity. Over in uh, James it says that, or I'm sorry, First John it says that God is light and in Him there's no darkness at all. God always does the right thing. God always thinks the right thing. God always says the right thing. God always is driven by the right motivations. God never does anything wrong. There's no darkness. There's no blot on His image or His character. There's no sin. God is a God who is a God of absolute moral perfection. He's holy. He's set apart from all sin, all things that are wrong. So it speaks of His absolute moral purity. So when He says, be holy for I'm holy, He's speaking of the second idea of holiness. Be set apart uh, from sin, like I am set apart from sin. And so, that's what it means that the Lord God is holy. It's, it's good to know that uh, our God is perfect, isn't it? That our God is perfect. You, you look at some of the, the Roman and Greek mythology and their concept of gods and, 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 and the, the way the gods function, the way the gods interacted with people. I mean, their gods were dysfunctional and, and devious and capricious and... And all these, all these different concepts. But our God, the God that we worship, the God that's revealed in the Bible, is a God of absolute moral perfection. Everything He does is right. As a matter of fact, over in Psalm 119, the Bible says, The Lord is good, and He does good. He's good in His character and nature, and everything He does, as an extension of that character and nature, is good. God always does the right thing. I, I love the old hymn. As a matter of fact, it's, one of my, it's probably my favorite hymn. It's my top three. But it's uh, uh, all the way my Savior leads me. And in that, in that hymn it says, one of the last lines it says, I know whatever befalls me, Jesus doeth all things well. God is good. Jesus does all things well. He is perfect. And so that's what's meant by the term holy. Now holiness is the chief attribute of God because it encompasses all of his other attributes. Holiness is the chief attribute of, attribute of God because it encompasses all of his other attributes. Now, if you were to just go to the mall with a microphone and a video camera and stick a, a microphone in someone's face say, what is God's chief attribute? Probably most people would say God is love. That's what most people would say. And, and they would be correct that love is one of the attributes of God because over in 1 John chapter 4, the Bible says that. God is love. By the way, aren't you glad God is love? I'm just really grateful for the love of God for, for me, and aren't you glad for the love of God for you? I mean, God is love. But I would argue that's not his chief attribute. I would argue his chief attribute is his holiness because his holiness encompasses all of his attributes. In other words, what makes God holy? What makes God unique? What sets God apart? Well, it's his justice. It's his sovereignty. It's his kindness. It's his patience. It's his grace. It's his mercy. It's his love, it's his truth. I mean, all the attributes are summed up in the idea that he is holy. Does that make sense? So all the attributes is what makes him other, makes him different, makes him unique. And so all the other attributes are encompassed by the one attribute, God is holy. And notice when God is talking about himself, he doesn't say, uh, be loving like I'm loving. He gets to that in the New Testament, but he says, be holy for I'm holy. The, the, the central attribute that God reveals is his holiness and all other attributes including his love and I'm, I, god is love 
is encompassed or wrapped up in the fact that God is holy. Does that make sense? Some of you look at me like, I'm not sure about. Okay, all right. So God is holy. It's his chief attribute. Now, here's another thought concerning the Lord's sanctifying. God desires, he's holy, and God desires to have a people that are set apart to reflect his nature to the rest of the world. All throughout the Bible, we see God with, have, the, ha, having this desire to have a group of people that are set apart to reflect his nature to the rest of the world. The Old Testament, that special people, uh, was the nation of Israel, right? His chosen nation was the nation of Israel, and he chose us to, to, to set them apart so he could send the Messiah through them. And Jesus came through the nation of Israel as a Jew, and he died on the cross for the sins of the world. So now, if anyone believes in Christ, they become a part of the church. That's the New Testament people of God. So the Old Testament, the people of God are the Jews. New Testament, the people of God are the church. If you're a follower of Christ, you're part of the church. You're God's, uh, you're, you're, you're God's possession. And God desires to have a people that are, that are set apart from the world to reflect his nature to the rest of the world. Turn to Leviticus chapter 20. Let me show you this. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 7. Leviticus 20, verse 7. It's where we started. You shall consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. I want you to be set apart, Israel, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my statutes and practice them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. So he wants Israel to be set apart from the rest of the nations. Look what he says in verse 22 of that same chapter. You are therefore to keep all my statutes and all my ordinances and do them so that the land to which I am bringing you to live will not spew you out. Moreover, you shall not follow the customs of the nation which I will drive out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I have abhorred them. Hence I have said to you, you are to possess their land, and I myself will give it to you to possess it, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples. So I've made you different. I've set you apart from all the other nations. You're my chosen nation, and you're going to show people what it looks like to live with the one true God as your king. That's, that's what's going to happen. I've set you apart to be different from all the surrounding nations. Which, going back to our study in 1 Samuel on Sunday mornings, makes it so extraordinary that the people of Israel said, we want a king to be like all the other nations around us. They were violating the very purpose that God had set them apart for, to be different than all the nations. And so the Lord has this desire to set apart people to, to, to show his nature to the rest of the world. Now, that leads us to number three. God always sets his people apart with a purpose. The reason he sets us apart is, is, is for a reason. Turn to Exodus chapter 19, second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 19. Verse 5, this is after the Lord delivered Israel from Egyptian bondage and slavery. This is after the Exodus. He's speaking to them at Mount Sinai in the wilderness. He says there in verse 5, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... Then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. So you're going to be my special nation among all the other nations. Why? Look in verse 6. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy, a sanctified, a set-apart nation. Now notice there he says that Israel is going to be set apart, the Jews are going to be set apart to be a kingdom of priests. Now talk to me for a minute. What's a priest do? What's a priest do? 
What's a priest's job? The concept of a priest. Mediator, right? That comes between God and others. So when he says to Israel, you're going to be a kingdom of priests, what he's saying is, you're going to be a mediator. Don't miss this. This is so important. You're going to be a mediator between me and all the other nations. You're going to show the other nations what I'm like, how great I am, by living according to my rules, so that they will have a desire to worship me the way you worship me. And so God's desire to set apart the Jews as his chosen nation was not to say, okay, these are my people, I don't want anybody else. He set them apart so that they could show how great he was to the other nations so they would come and worship him too. And if you don't believe that, just read through the first five books of the Bible. Everywhere you read, he keeps making these, these allowances for sojourners, people who were not Jews, to be able to come into the Jewish family and worship him as the one true God. He talks about the sojourners all throughout the Old Testament. He makes allowances for the Gentiles to come and worship him too. So the, the role of the Jews was to make God known as a kingdom of priests to all the other nations. That makes sense? So even here we see God's missionary heart. God has a heart to reach the nations with the truth of who he is. And he used Israel for this purpose. So he wanted them set apart. Don't miss this because we're going to get to this in our own lives in a few minutes. He wanted, he wanted to set them apart, sanctify them, make them holy, make them different other nations so that he could reach the other nations. Does that make sense? That makes sense? This is yes, this is no, all right. Okay. And so that's why God sanctifies. He always sanctifies with a purpose. Okay, this is, these are not, all these commandments you read, the, the, the Old Testament law, all of that, it, this is not God just trying to steal people's fun. All right? This is God showing the, the rest of the nations what it means when God is your king. What life looks like, how ordered and whole life is when you live according to God's commandments for your life. Okay? Now, God's a God that sanctifies. God's a God that sets apart. He sets apart for purpose. Now, God sets us apart. If we're followers of Christ. He sets us apart. And so, how does the Lord sanctify his people today? What does this, what does this look like for me? Wait, I'm, I'm not a Jew. I, 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 I didn't. I wasn't there when he gave them the sacrificial law, and I wasn't there when Leviticus was written. So what is, what is sanctification, what is God setting me apart look like for my life today? Well, I'm going to give you, what's that, eight? How many blanks do you have there, eight or nine? Eight. My formatting messed up on my iPad, so it just all says one. All right, so... Uh, eight thoughts about how the Lord sanctifies His people uh, today. All right? Now, here's number one. This is step number one. You can't get to step number two without step number one. So don't miss step number one. He forgives us in Christ for not living up to His righteous standards and sets us apart for Himself. He forgives us in Christ for not living up to His righteous standards and sets us apart for Himself. So before you can be set apart by God, before you can be made different and holy by God, you've got to answer for the fact that you've already messed up. Right? I mean, we've all blown it. God's spoken, and we've all violated His commandments. We've all done something God told us not to do. We've all not done something God's told us to do. We've all, the Bible says, fallen short of the glory of God. So before we can be God's special chosen people, set apart for His purposes, we've got to be forgiven for where we've blown it in the first place. Turn over to Romans with me. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. The 
The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, this is Paul writing here to the church in Rome. I'm, I'm, I'm so glad for verses like these verses. Romans 8, 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, if you're in Christ, if you've embraced Christ as your Lord and Savior, called on His name to save you, invite Him into your life, if you're a follower of Jesus, you do not have to fear the condemnation of God against your sin because Jesus took all that condemnation on Himself. You don't have to fear God's punishment for your sin because Jesus took that punishment. You're not condemned by God anymore. Your sins have been washed away. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now look in verse 3. I love verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, and by the way, that save you. The law couldn't save you because to, to be saved by keeping the law, you'd have to be perfect, and no one's perfect because of the weakness of the flesh. So the law couldn't save you because of the weakness of the flesh. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. So God saved you. You couldn't save yourself, so God did something to save you. How? By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. So you could not keep the law perfectly, so you were, you were bound for hell, bound for eternity, separated from God in that awful place called hell, but God did something to save you. He sent His Son, Jesus, and Jesus took on humanity, took on human flesh, and He became our offering for sin. He died on the cross in our place. So if we embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior, God washes away our sins. Isn't that good? There's therefore now... No condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so, step number one, for God setting us apart, sanctifying us, making us different, making us holy, is we've got to be forgiven for where we've blown it in the first place. And, and, and guess what? Not only do we have to be forgiven for where we've blown it in the past, we've got to be forgiven for when we're going to blow it in the future. I was saved when I was nine years old, but did you know I've sinned since then? I've been a Christian since I was nine, but I've sinned since then. So when Jesus died for my sins, he didn't just die for my sins up to the point where I met him as Savior. He died for all my sins, right? The sins I committed before I became a Christian and the sins I committed today. He paid for them all on the cross, right? Same with you. And so he, he forgives us for failing to live up to his righteous standard. That's step number one. You've blown it, I've blown it. Before we can start this whole sanctification thing, we've got to be forgiven for where we have messed up. And we have all messed up. When we are saved, we transition from rebellious sinners to God's treasured possession. He makes us his own. He adopts us. Our sins are washed away and we are justified, declared righteous by God. Not because we're good, but because Jesus died to pay for our sins. Because Jesus is good. That's step number one. He forgives us in Christ. Now here's step number two concerning how the Lord sanctifies His people today. He purposes to make us like Jesus. God did not save you to leave you like you are. Let me say it like this. God loves you too much to leave you like you are. Not only does God want to forgive you for where you've blown it, where you're going to blow it, God wants to change you. Look what it says in Romans 8. You're there already. Look in verse 29. The Bible says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. The word predestined means predetermined, marked out the boundaries beforehand. He predetermined to become conformed to the image of his Son. 
So if you're a believer in Christ, God predetermined that you would become like Jesus. So when you're saved, God begins the process of making you like his son. And I got good news. Philippians 1.6 says that when God starts something, he finishes it. What God begins, he completes. And so if you're saved, God began a transformation process in your life, and he's going to keep working that process out in your life until one day he completes it and brings you home to heaven. But understand that God is interested in your becoming more like Jesus, and he's working to make that a reality. Which is one of the reasons I believe that someone that makes a, a religious decision, a, a profession of faith, and they're, you know, they're 10 years old, and now they're 25, and there's been no change in their life. There's been, there's been no growth in grace. They're not more like Jesus than they were. There's no desire to love Jesus or follow Jesus or be involved in Jesus' church. I mean, there's just no spiritual fruit there at all. I would say that person was not truly saved. They made a mouth profession, but it was not true salvation because there's been no change. If, if someone's saved, God is working to make them more like Jesus. And if they're not being become more like Jesus, it's because maybe it's because God hadn't begun that process because they've never given their lives to Him. That makes sense? We have a lot of folks in the Bible Belt who walk around saying, I'm saved, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven when I die. Yeah, I got my fire insurance. I'm not going to hell, I'm saved. And yet they're living like hell. They're living like the devil. And they got no interest in the things of God. No interest in Christ. And, and can I just tell you this? I wouldn't swing over hell on that rope. Would you? If you, if you know Christ as Lord and Savior... God's going to begin a transformation process. So there's been no change. And the only thing you can say is, well, maybe the process never started. Serious stuff. And so he purposes to make us more like Jesus. It brings us to sanctification. That's what sanctification is. Let me give you this, uh, this definition from Wayne Grudem, a uh, well-known theologian. He writes, sanctification, it's a big theological word. Here's what it means. Sanctification is a progressive work of God in man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. So sanctification is the, is the work of God where he, he gives you more and more victory over sin, more and more freedom from sin, and more and more growth towards Christ's likeness. That's what sanctification is. So sanctification is the process whereby God changes you to make you more like Jesus. That's what it is. Okay? If you're saved, God's doing that. Maybe sometimes it's slower than others or faster than others, and sometimes it, it's, it's not perceptible, sometimes it, it is perceptible, but, but if you're saved, God is doing that in your life right now. You are being sanctified by God's grace. All right? Which leads me to number three. He sets us free. Here's the, what sanctification is. He sets us free to begin to pursue His holy standards. So the Bible says that you were bound before you were saved. You were unable to pursue God's holy standards. You were bound by your sin. Bound by your sin nature. But look what it says in Romans 8, verse 3. What the law could not do, i.e. save. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh. So through Jesus, He paid for our sins so we could be saved. Now look at verse 4. So that, don't miss this verse, it's a very important verse. So that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. So here's what he's saying. Jesus died to forgive you where you've fallen short, but now that you're saved, you are set free to begin to pursue those standards you could not pursue before you were saved. 
So it's not like you're saved and all God's standards go away. No, now that you're saved, you're set free through the power of God, the power of the indwelling spirit, to begin to pursue God's standards, God's will. But to begin to live up to the Ten Commandments, right? To begin to live up to loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind. To begin to live up to loving your neighbors yourself. To begin to live up to make disciples of all the nations. Now that you are saved, you've been set free from the power of your flesh, the power sin had over you, and now you have the capacity to begin to pursue what God wants for you. To pursue God's moral will for your life. Before you were saved, you were in bondage. You did not have that capacity. But now that you're saved, you have the capacity to begin to live according to God's word. That's good news, right? You have that capacity. So God sets us free. If you weren't set free, you couldn't be sanctified. He sets us free to begin to pursue His holy standards. Um, and we can read, we looked at Romans 6, I think, last week. And it talks about dying to sin and being alive to God in Christ. He, we, we, sin no longer has dominion over us, so now we can pursue God's holy standards. Next, as we think about sanctification. He gives us the gift of the indwelling spirit to transform us. So how does sanctification actually work? What's the mechanism God uses? Well, it's the spirit of God. Look what it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 9. Paul writes, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So now, what he's saying is, the Spirit of God who resurrected Christ, we're talking about resurrection power, that's, that's a lot of power, now lives in you. And that resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead is now residing in your life to change you. So if you're a Christian, listen to me, you are indwelt by resurrection power. Pretty incredible. Say, well, I don't feel like it. That's what the Bible says. Now, talk a little... Trinity for a second. The Bible teaches there's one God in essence, nature, character. And that one God exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Alright? Co-equal, co-eternal. And all three persons are God. You got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're all equally God. And so the Bible teaches that if you are saved, if, you, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've been born again, the third person of the Godhead, God the Holy Spirit, God himself lives in you. That resurrection power lives in you. Now, question. Everybody look at me for a minute. Why is the church in America so powerless? Why are we being overwhelmed by secular culture? Why are we losing our nation? Why, statistically, are we even losing our own kids? Could it be we're not living according to the power that resides in us? Could it be that the resurrection power of the Spirit is, is latent in, in many ways in our lives? We're not, we're not availing ourselves to that power? If you're a Christian, the resurrection power of the Spirit of God lives on the inside of you. And that's how God changes you. He gives you the Spirit, 
And the indwelling spirit begins to do that inner work of transformation. All right? Now, so he gives us a spirit to transform us. Secondly, he gives us the gift of the word to guide us. The gift of his word to guide us. Turn back in the, near the back of the New Testament to 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter two. Verse two. Peter writes here to believers in Christ scattered throughout Asia Minor. Like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. So he compares here the Bible to milk that helps the baby to grow. Babies need milk to grow. And if they get the right amount of milk, it helps them to grow. Uh, I've got a, a nine-year-old boy, a six-year-old boy, and a two-year-old girl. And I'm telling you, I buy milk all the time. We cannot keep milk in the house. I mean, we, we, we put down the milk. I mean, we do. And, and, and it's amazing how that milk is so important for their growth and how it helps them to grow and be healthy. And the Word of God is like milk. God, is, God not only ordains the ends that we become like Jesus, God ordains the means to that end. And He is ordained that if we're going to become like Jesus, it's going to happen through the indwelling Spirit taking the Word of God and applying it to our life. So, let me say it like this. You will not see significant growth in your life apart from a regular intake of the Bible. You need the Bible the way a baby needs milk. And if you don't get a regular intake of the Bible in your life, you're like a malnourished baby. You're not going to grow uh, in your relationship to God in significant ways. And so, he gives us the Spirit to transform us. He gives us the Word to guide us. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for reproof, for uh, rebuke for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, adequate for every good work. So the Word of God equips you, it builds you up, it grows you, it nourishes you, it gives you what you need to grow in your Christian life. God has ordained that His Word will guide you in your journey to become more like Jesus. And so you've got to get a regular intake of the Word of God in your life. Uh, let me just encourage you with this. I think about this today. Uh, I, I just, I'm, just, I'm just convinced that every Christian now needs a Bible reading plan to just hold you accountable, keep you on track. There have been times I've not used Bible reading plans, uh, but I'm telling you, my, my interaction with Scripture is, is much more in-depth, much more intentional, much more consistent when I have a Bible reading plan. And we have, you know, we have chronological Bibles, uh, studies going on all over the church. People are going through the Bible chronologically. That's a great way to go through the Bible. I use the Discipleship Journal Bible Reading Plan. I'm reading through four different places in the Scriptures every day, just systematically working my way through the Bible, and I just, I just love it. I mean, it, it feels like physical nourishment. You're reading your Bible, and you can just feel the, the nourishment happening when you are interacting with the truths of the Word of God on a regular, consistent uh, basis. And so I just can't encourage you enough to just, just get in uh, to uh, the Word of God. I, for example, this morning, I got to read... Uh, Joshua and him leading uh, the nation of Israel against Jericho. Amazing story. They marched around it and blowed the trumpets and shouted and the walls fell down flat and God gave them a great uh, victory. I saw something this morning I've never seen. I've never really noticed before. 
at the end of that passage uh, in Jericho, it says no one's ever going to rebuild this. Uh, if they do, they're going to, uh, th- their, their offspring are going to be cursed. And there's a passage, I think it was in 2 Kings, I didn't write it down, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, one of the kings, where a king, one of the kings tries to rebuild Jericho, and he goes to rebuild it, and after he does it, he loses his kids. The curse was fulfilled in his life. I was like, wow, I really hadn't noticed that before. So, just this morning, I saw Jericho, and I was like, man, God keeps his word. You, you better listen to what he says. And I was re- reading Psalms, the Psalm of Asaph today. I think it's Psalm 73 or 74. Um, great Psalm. I was, uh, read in uh, the Gospel of Mark today about the authority uh, that Jesus taught with, and the, the authority he had over demons, the authority he had over sickness. The Bible said that the people were astonished and amazed by Jesus, and word uh, about him spread through all Galilee. He, the Bible said his fame spread through all Galilee, and I thought, you know what? When we get amazed by Jesus anew and afresh, his fame will spread, because we'll, we'll not be able to stop talking about him. Amen? Maybe the reason his fame is not spreading from our churches is because we're not amazed by him the way they were amazed by him in the first century. It's time for us to be amazed by Jesus again, right? There's, there's no one like Jesus. I mean, he is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Alpha, the Omega, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He is, he is Jesus, our only hope, our Savior, our Lord. He's the King. I mean, we ought to be amazed by him because when we're amazed by him, we'll talk about him. When we talk about him, his fame will spread. It's just that simple. And, um, and also I read uh, today uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It closes as we have the mind of Christ. The Spirit works in us and we're saved. He gives us the mind of Christ. We can understand spiritual things now. It's just amazing. So, so just this morning, I got to be exposed to those four different passages of Scripture. And it was just good stuff, right? Good stuff. And, and we all have that opportunity every day to be exposed to the Word of God. So do it. Get a Bible reading plan and read your Bible. And I'll be honest with you, sometimes I get to it early in the morning, sometimes, I, sometimes it's at night if the kids go to bed. I'll sit at my kitchen table and read. It, you know, sometimes my schedule's kind of crazy. I know yours is too, so you've got to kind of be flexible sometimes. But get into the Bible. Read your Bible because it's how God has chosen to make you more like Jesus. And he'll not significantly change you apart from the Bible. Read your Bible. All right. I didn't mean to go off that long on that, but it's important. Next, he gives us the Spirit to transform us, the Word to guide us. He gives us the gift of the church to encourage us and hold us accountable. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. I love this passage. Verse 19. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You know what he's saying there? He's saying Jesus is our high priest. He died for our sins. He shed his own blood to forgive us so we could now come into the presence of a holy God. So Paul's admonition is, okay, you can draw near to God, draw near. I mean, spend time with Him, go into His presence, draw near. The relationship's available now. Enjoy that relationship. Then he says, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. So the second admonition here is, hold fast to the doctrines of the faith, the doctrines we believe in, 
the doctrines we live by, the doctrines we will die for, hold fast to those doctrines because there will always be people that try to get us to back away from what we know to be true. So hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Look at verse 24. And, watch this last phrase, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In other words, if we're going to draw near to God and we're going to hold fast to, the, to our faith, we need to encourage each other to do it. We need to hold each other accountable, keep each other on the right path. We need each other's help to draw near and hold fast. Amen? And so the church is a gift from God to help you, to encourage you to do the right thing, to stay on the right path, to pursue God, to love others. The church is a gift. That's why it says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. We don't go to church because the preacher says you need to go to church. Even though the preacher says that. The reason we come to church is because the Bible says you need each other. Don't stop meeting together. He says you need each other. If you're going to hold fast and, and, and draw near, you need to be encouraged. You need to be stimulated to love and to good works. You know, I grew up in a kind of a mindset that said, okay, church is just, okay, just show up. And if you show up, you're doing the right thing and just show up because that's what you ought to do. And there's no rhyme or reason for why you show up. Right? And Claire and I were talking about some loved ones, some family members that, that, are, that are not active in church right now, and, and, they, and they know better, and we were kind of discussing them and, and how we talk to them and things of that nature. And, 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 and this is the part they just don't get. They think, well, you just show up to church is the right thing to do, but we're busy or we don't think it's a priority, so we're not going to do it. They don't get the fact that they, they desperately need the body of Christ. If they're going to, to pursue God and hold fast to the faith, and draw near to Him, they're going to do that. They need the encouragement and support of the body of Christ. They desperately need that. And so we've got to draw near and gather together so we get that encouragement from each other, all right? So I need you, you need me. So let's keep doing what we're doing. Let's get together and study God's Word and sing songs and hang out and eat catfish. And let's just, let's just, let's, we need each other, amen? And by the way, the church is called the Bride of Christ. And I just wonder how someone can say, yeah, I love Jesus, but I don't like his bride. You know how it would go, go over with me if you came to me and said, wait, you know, I like you. I think you're, you're, you're a cool guy, good pastor, whatever. I don't like your wife. That's, hey, that's not an option. We're a package deal, bud. Not an option. That would not go over well with me. Would it go well over well with you if I told you I didn't like your spouse? No. And we got these people going around saying, well, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. That's not like his bride. Give me a break. Give me a break. The church is the body and the bride of Christ. And you know how offensive it, it must sound to Jesus for us to say, I don't care about your bride? Something to think about. So the church is a gift to encourage us to go the right direction. Think of the church like that. All right? Next. Let's think about sanctification. So it gives us the spirit to change us, the word to guide us, the, the church to encourage us. But then he calls us, watch this, to dependent discipline. Now there's, a, there's an interesting 
argument going on in theological circles today about sanctification. And the argument basically boils down to this. Who does it? Is sanctification something God does and we just kind of let him do it? Or is sanctification something that, that, that we do so that we can be changed? Is sanctification something that we have to... Is there, do we have to exude any effort? we have to put forth any effort? Or is God just going to do it if we don't put forth any effort? What, what, how, how does the sanctification thing actually work? And the answer is yes. Okay? I want you to hear me carefully. If you're going to change, it's only because of God's grace working in you to change you. Only God can change the human heart, right? Only God can change character. Only God can do that. But God not only ordains the ends, He ordains the means. And God has said, if you're going to be changed, you've got to employ the means I put in place. And so we, on our end, have to discipline ourselves to put the means in place. Read the Bible, right? Draw near to God. Get around other church folks. Be filled with the Spirit. We've got to employ the right means. If we employ the right means, God will do the work of changing. So we have to discipline ourselves while at the same time being completely dependent upon God to do it. Now let me show you this in the Bible. Turn to 2 Peter. There's a lot of places we could go, but turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. Verse 3. Peter writes here, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So here's what Peter's saying. God, by his power, has granted you everything you need to grow in life and godliness. So everything you need, God's going to provide it. Does that make sense? So should, are we just supposed to sit around and wait for him to do it? Just kind of, just kind of, just kind of, just kind of float through life, and how are we supposed to approach sanctification? Well, look what he says in verse four: "For by these he has granted us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust." So, so God's promised you he's gonna he's gonna change you, so that your 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 corruption is left behind. You become more like Jesus. Now, look in verse five. Now, for this very reason, because God's promised to change you, all right, God's going to do it, for this very reason, also, applying all, what's the word there? Diligence. So God's going to do it, but you've got to be diligent on some stuff. He says, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, in your moral excellence, knowledge, in your knowledge, self-control, in your self-control, perseverance, in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor or unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's sanctification in a nutshell. You ready? God does it. God does the changing, but you've got to be diligent to discipline yourself to put the means in place that God works through. A book that really helped me on this, and I, it, it's just one of my favorite books. It's called The Discipline of Grace by Jerry Bridges. It's a great book. And in that book, he talks about this dependent discipline. He may use different terms, but it, this is the basic idea. And he, he talks about, uh, no, I think he uses the same terms. Dependent and discipline, dependence and discipline are like two wings of an airplane. He says, he even has a diagram in there. He says, airplane needs two wings to fly. And for us to be sanctified, both wings have to be in place. We have to be dependent upon God, and we also have to be disciplined in our walk with 
God. You need both. Both are uh, needy. And, and I think it was in that book I came across this illustration that really helped me. Here's the illustration that helps me the most with sanctification. God's role, our role, how that all works out. Okay? Only God can make a seed grow into a fruit-bearing plant. Right? Or tree. Or vegetable-bearing plant. Or I don't, whatever. Alright? Only God can do that. I mean, it's still really miraculous how, how a seed is in the ground. All of a sudden, it bursts through the soil, and it grows, and it produces fruit. I mean, it's hard for us to... I mean, it's just amazing how that happens. Right? Only God can do that. That's why, to my knowledge, uh, I've never met an atheist farmer. Because farmers, they know... God's in control of the weather, right? And, and they know if this seed's going to grow, God's got to do something. I, I've, I, have you ever met an atheist farmer? I never have. I mean, they, they understand God's got to do something for my, my crop to grow. But what's a farmer do? A farmer cultivates the soil. A farmer plants the seed. A farmer waters. A farmer kills weeds. A farmer is very... You won't find many folks that work harder than farmers, right? They're diligent. And they do the work of cultivation, and God gives the growth. And to me, that is a perfect illustration of sanctification. We are to be diligent to cultivate the soil of our hearts. We read the Bible, we pray, we attend church, we get around other believers, we, we do all the things God has told us to do. We discipline ourselves to do those things, and we're cultivating the soil of our hearts. And when our hearts are cultivated, God does what only He can do. He grows us. He changes us. He transforms us. Does that make sense? So we've got to be dependent upon God, because only God can do it. But we've also got to be disciplined. As a matter of fact, the Bible says over in 1 Timothy 4 that, that uh, bodily exercise is of some benefit, but little benefit compared to spiritual godliness. The Bible says we've got to exercise ourselves for spiritual godliness. We've got we've to we've work, train ourselves to grow in godliness. And so we've got to have discipline and... Um, effort in our lives, but all dependent upon the work of God in us. So he calls us to dependent discipline. Now here's the last thing. He forgives us in Christ for not living up to his righteous standards and sets us apart for himself. He purposes to make us like Jesus. He sets us free to begin to pursue his holy standards. He gives us the gift of the indwelling spirit to transform us. He gives us the gift of his word to guide us. He gives us the gift of the church to encourage us, hold us accountable. He calls us to dependent discipline, but last... He uses our changed lives as a witness to a lost and dying world. Remember what I said earlier? God sets apart people for a purpose. He set apart Israel. Why did he set them apart? Why? Why did God set apart Israel? Example, to make his name known to all the other nations, right? Okay? Guess what? Same thing for the church. Turn to 1 Peter. Love this passage. First Peter chapter 2, look in verse 9. Talking to Christians here, Gentile Christians, predominantly. First Peter 2, 2 verse 9, Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a sanctified, a set-apart nation. God has set you apart from the rest of the world. He's made you different. A holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that, you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, different, different than the world around you, to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Now look in verse 12. 
Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, those that don't know the Lord. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So he's saying, be different than the world, so they'll see the reality of the God you serve and worship, and they'll want to come and serve and worship that God too. So God wants you to be holy, sanctified, set apart, so that you can get lost folks' attention. And say, hey, look at my life. This is the difference Jesus makes. He changes me. He gives me hope and peace and joy and fulfillment and life and meaning and purpose and, 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 and joy and all of that. And if you'll follow Jesus, you can get all of that too. That's what our lives are meant to be. Sanctified, holy, different than the world, different than the ungodly. So the ungodly can see the difference that Jesus makes, right? And so, that's what sanctification is all about. God wants to change you. He wants to transform you. He wants to make you much, much different than you used to be. And much, much different than the ungodly folks that, that live around you. So that the ungodly folks that live around you will have a desire to taste and see that the Lord is good the way that you have. Jesus said it like this over in Matthew 5.16. He said, he said, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So as people see your good works, your life can move them closer to the Father. Pretty important stuff. So that's the purpose, the, the foundational idea behind sanctification. God's not just giving us rules and standards just to say, okay, just do this just so you can say you're doing something. No. The Bible says in 1 John that his commandments are not burdensome. In other words, God's commandments have reason and purpose behind them. They're what's best for us. And when we follow his commandments, when we follow his standards, when we live the way he calls us to live, it, it impacts a lost and dying world as they see the difference Jesus makes in someone's life. So, that's how the Lord sanctifies his people today.